Have you heard of Unmuddle? They are disrupting the community college scene. Check them out at unmuddle.com slash colleges. That's U-N-M-U-D-L dot com slash colleges. One of the major reasons SUNY Broom got involved is that I thought the approach of bringing community colleges together from across the country with a focused mission for providing more flexible offerings in the workforce development space would help build an even bigger and better brand for community colleges everywhere. Even for a small number of us to get into this space as a consortium, if you will, I thought would help build the uh, the community college brand to across the country to be even stronger than it is. And, and, and at the same time, help build SUNY Broom's brand nationally as well. Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosted by Dr. Joe Salustio and Elizabeth Leiba, produced by Elvin Freitas, the EdUp Experience brings you the brightest and most influential minds from across the globe via the EdUp Experience podcast. Get ready, get set, let's go. Well, it seems from all of the reports that have come out and the studies that have been done that more and more people are interested in short-term types of education and training, especially now with such huge job demand out there, than say, geez, I got to mostly leave the workforce for two or four years to get a degree. Particularly for our college, we've been very strong in the two-year degree space, but we've not been as strong in the short-term workforce development space for individuals to be able to come and take a short-term few weeks, few months workforce training course and go out and get a job or get a better job. We haven't done a lot of that. And I thought this was an opportunity for us to be able to get into that space very quickly and be able to provide more diversity of offerings using our partners in Unmuddle who can provide some expertise that we don't have at a medium-sized college in the middle of New York. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. My name is Dr. Joe Salustio. Always with me, the exalted one, Liz. Liz, how are you? <laughs> the exalted one. That's new. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, it just comes to me, these things. I come see that. You're inspired. I appreciate uh, you, them. You inspire me so much, Liz. You have no idea. I'm quickly <laughs> watching you ascend to be... Uh, speaking of exalted, I'm watching you ascend to a hundred thousand, um, LinkedIn followers while I, yeah. um, struggle to reach 10,000. <laughs> I helped you get like a hundred followers one day. You have you to give yourself credit there. You, you did. And, and yeah. just for, for our audience, Liz did a, a LinkedIn post and it basically said, can you please follow Joe? Can you just please follow him? <laughs> but it works. I mean, sometimes it that, my husband or... always says, my husband, who's incidentally, his name is also Joe, always says a closed mouth, don't get fed. So you there have you to go. ask, ask and you'll receive. <laughs> well, speaking of closed mouths, I have to, I have to tell you. So Liz, um, if you reach back into time on the Edip Experience podcast, which Ooh. we're, we're today, we're at, um, as the as this recording is is happening, which it'll be a while before this comes out, but we're at 287 episode 287. Who would have ever thought we would be at 287, Liz? Did you ever think that would happen? No, I was surprised actually that we got past the first week. <laughs> Me so, too. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought we'd survive bringing you on as a host. But I know a I whirlwind. The viewership would go straight down. <laughs> Miraculously, we've passed 70,000 streams of this yes. podcast. Okay. We have. And, and we have episodes now we're, we're somewhere in August. Now we have episodes booked out to 2022 right now with, with amazing guests all across business industry and higher education. So Liz, um, we're in demand, which is a great thing, right? Yeah. Always they're listening, which is a great thing. Mm-hmm. And anyway, getting back to my point, if you reach back into time, all of us have go to, um, guests that we, you know, we go, Hey, you remember, uh, you know, we were talking with so-and-so and this person said this, and this person said that, and it becomes the foundation for some of the questions that we ask and our guest today. And I, I, I verified this through, I, I, you know, I listened to some old episodes and I verified this, this guest today is your most referenced guest. Did you know that you'll always I say, didn't know that to 
this guest, the one we have back with us today, we, so there's a teaser. He's, he's come back again. But many of your questions will go, hey, when, when I talk to this guest, That's he true. Said this, and right. I want to ask you about this. I don't know if you knew that, that this was your most referenced guest of all time. I didn't know that. But now that you say that, I've referenced him probably at least a dozen times now that at I think least. about it. Yeah. At least. Yeah. And, and furthermore, this guest was the first guest you ever joined us as a fill-in on the Edip Experience podcast. I couldn't make it that day. And you yes. filled in and the rest is history. We've had to deal with you every <laughs> single day since this point. So when I say it's a pivotal day, I mean it. Yes. Uh, it's been a pivotal day. Absolutely. And I'm excited actually to get this ball rolling because I have to reference him some more and find some new material to well, move forward with, right? <laughs> well, if there's one thing we can do, it's create new material. And he is here with us again, ladies and gentlemen, returning after episode six of the Edip Experience. I don't even remember when that was. Episode six was a long time ago. His name is Bernie Weiss, and he's president of iHeartMedia New York, and he's here to talk to us about his new book, Ace It, How Sales Champions Win New Business. Bernie, welcome back to the show. Hi, guys, and uh, thanks for having me back. And I'm, I'm blown away that you guys are up to 287 episodes. That's incredible. So congrats. Thank you very much. We're blown away also. Um, it's been a pretty incredible ride, I have to be honest. Bernie, you we're so kind to come on uh, the podcast. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing. <laughs> we were, we were, oh, just get on the microphone and talk. And you came on, you gave us such a, an amazing episode and perspective. It would have been even better if I was there and didn't have to leave it to Liz and Elvin uh, to trudge through all the mud uh, with you. So we'll, we'll perfect things today, right, Liz, now that I'm here? Or we'll take it to the next level and actually... <laughs> go past <laughs> far exceed expectations. We were a little rough in those days. Well, yeah. Bernie, congratulations on the book. I mean, you know, look, a book, uh, creating a book is not easy, especially when you're coming up with the topic um, and you're, you're writing a book about sales. And, you know, the reason I wanted to bring up how referenced you are by Liz is because we always talk about sales in higher education. We talk about training salespeople in higher education and how sometimes we're not actually training salespeople. We're giving them this broad-based education and then they come out of their undergrad or whatever, and they can't actually do anything. They can't actually sell, which becomes the, the precipice of many of our questions. So talk about the book, talk about why you wrote it and who's your audience for the book. Sure. So why did I write it? I, um, I've been in sales positions my entire career, pretty much uh, in the last 15 years, most, mostly in sales management positions. And um, about two years ago, got promoted to a more general management uh, oriented role. And I just felt like now is a good time to write down everything I learned, everything I was able to observe, um, selling and managing in what is the biggest um, and probably most competitive uh, media market in the world. Uh, where hundreds of salespeople uh, or hundreds of sales teams and, and, and thousands of salespeople compete for the same advertising dollars and, and write down what I was uh, learning, uh, what I was seeing, what I uh, can pass on. And that was really the, uh, the impetus of, um, of sitting down really in March 2020 um, for the first time. So it was literally a week after the pandemic hit and we started to work from home. Then I just felt, you know what? This might be the, the only time I actually have the time to, to um, carve out some, some hours where I could actually sit down and write. And, um, and then secondly, this might be something I could look back at with maybe a little bit of pride that I actually did it during the pandemic. And, um, and that's how I um, uh, set out to, to write the book. It's called ACID, like you said, uh, How Sales Champions Win New Business. And the target audience is really four different people. Number one, um, it's someone who maybe just changed jobs and is new to a sales role. So has, has never sold before, but has some type of job experience already. Number two, college graduates or, or maybe college students that are looking for their uh, career that are not sure which way to go, um, that might consider sales, but don't really know um, how it works and what they're getting into. Um, so that's number two. Number three uh, would be sales veterans who have been selling for a while, but might need a shot in the arm uh, and maybe a new motivation as they're going in a new quarter or maybe a new year. 
Uh, and then number four, it's really for sales managers. And um, what, you know, what you, what you notice in, in the book and publishing world is there are many sales books out there, especially the ones that were written the last five to 10 years, uh, but they are very narrow and specialized. So you will, you will find books on cold calling. You will find books on presenting. You will find books on asking questions. But there's very few good sales books out there that were written in the past five years that kind of tie it all together uh, from the first step in the sales process, which is really finding a prospect all the way to the end of the sales process, um, which is obviously asking for the order and then launching um, whatever so you, solution you, you sold. So for a sales manager, which is kind of the fourth group, this will be beneficial uh, because they will have an entire sales process laid out for them that they can then easily just give to a new hire and say, okay, this is the entire sales process um, from beginning to end. And I try to make it as accessible as possible and as easily uh, applicable as possible by using a fictional prospect. So what the reader will notice is this is like real world stuff um, that we are going through. Like it will show scripts and will show um, questions to ask all the way to the end of the sales process. And um, that should help it easier to understand and apply. You know, uh, this is awesome. And I, Liz, I'm going to, I wonder if, um, if this book would help you, Liz, and me mentor you um, through your <laughs> podcasting career and, you know, become a, a better presenter, uh, possibly. Well, Liz I... has, has 100,000 followers on LinkedIn, so she's not going to need much help from us. Uh, <laughs> there we go spoken a, by a, a true veteran salesperson exactly thank mm -hmm. you and and well you know just guiding you so you know just take it and you, you know the funny to... part about this liz is that <laughs> in episode six your first episode with bernie we were very serious you and elvin and i know. and i when we used to do these old episodes we were right. very serious bernie we did no joking we had no fun we were very uh -huh. Very serious. And now what a change it's been, right? Well, I, I would love to actually pivot when we're talking about seriousness and um, how you approach conversations. I'd love for Bernie to weigh in because this is something I feel very fascinating. Both Joe and I come from the admissions side of education and we both worked at for profit. So we're very familiar with sales and sales strategy and sales training and I agree with you that a lot of times there really isn't a holistic and from step one to the end of the whole sales process training. How important is, and in relationship to, I think, higher education, this is really um, applicable. How important and, and based on your own experience, what you've written in the book and, and what you've seen from college graduates and, and people that are entering sales and even the veterans, like you said, how important is the relationship building and the ability to connect with the prospects. But I think in higher ed, sometimes we get so caught up in the product, which is the education and the degree that we don't really think about some of the other aspects. And, and I think in the corporate world, it's really very nurtured as far as that's concerned. What are some tips and strategies that you found that you've used to guide your own team or your own career? And what are some ways that you think people can be more intentional when it comes to actually developing those relationships? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is when I talk to college students or maybe job applicants that just graduated um, and we talk about the sales role they're applying for. And, uh, and one of the questions I usually ask is why, why do you want to be in sales? Or why do you think uh, this is the career you want to pursue? And often I get the answer, um, I'm really outgoing or I'm an extrovert or um, I'm really good socially and I'm really great in building relationships. And the reality is, and part of the book is about that, um, that while this is important, there are many other things that are much, much more important than that. Um, and this is a, an eye-opening moment for many, many college grads um, who think, hey, this is just about you know, being out and about, being able to talk to people, um, being charismatic and, uh, and engaging and maybe, maybe fitting that stereotype of a natural born salespeople that I'm sure you guys have uh, heard in the past. And the reality is um, that there's a, number one, a ton of research on it, but also in my experience, what I've seen over the last 20 years, that it's many other things that actually make a good salesperson. For example, Liz, you just mentioned telling stories. 
telling stories is massively important for a salesperson. Um, like you just mentioned in, in your field of, of, of business, like somebody could just take out a, a sheet of stats and show what missions numbers and, and uh, uh, statistics and, and, and all that, right? Okay, that's at one point maybe relevant in the entire process, but how you really make an impact if you pick a specific story, maybe about somebody who uh, has graduated from that particular school and uh, what type of career um, came about after uh, that person graduated and really make this an engaging story. So that's number one. Number two, salespeople are really curious people. So the best salespeople that I worked with never stop asking questions, almost to a point where it's, where it's too much. They just dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And as they are doing that, they are able to uncover um, certain problems on the client side or prospect side, certain issues that they need addressing, and then are able to come back with a solution that does exactly that. Um, so being curious is huge. And number three is really all about following a process uh, and all about creating a routine. So I write in a book about um, two tennis players, which Maybe you guys don't know because they were big in the 80s. Um, and um, that was a little bit maybe before you guys following the sport of tennis, if you do at all. But there's those two players. One of them is John McEnroe, who was this guy uh, player who was almost like a genius. He had this feel for the ball. He was improvising all the time. Uh, he was very natural in his approach. Every point was constructed differently. Um, and he was very successful. But his nemesis was this um, player from the um, Czechoslovakia back then in, in the 80s. His name was Ivan Lendl. And he had the exact opposite type of game. His game was all based on process. He uh, constructed every single point the same way. He just followed these mini steps uh, in every single point then that led him to actually win the point in the end if he followed all those steps uh, the right way. And and he was also very successful. And that's why those two different polar opposites of players, when you watch them, was really, really entertaining um, to watch those matches. My premise and my hypothesis for the book, and this is really what the book is about, is that as a salesperson, you will be more successful if you follow the approach of Ivan Lendl, the process guy, as opposed to this natural improvising, um, maybe charismatic approach that McEnroe uh, was using on, on on the court, so uh, I so love yeah. this. You drop in so many gems, Bernie, because I love the idea. I always think about this in terms of anything that I do, whether it's teaching in the classroom, whether it's been building my brand on uh, LinkedIn, whether it's designing courses. I always think in terms of process because I think if you're able to just replicate something and duplicate it you can kind of tweak it and kind of freestyle a little bit in between but if you can duplicate that exact process every single time you have a framework that is, as long as you've you've gotten it and perfected it then it's going to work every time can you speak a little bit to that idea of as far as the process is concerned how in higher education we can balance that because i think that's one thing that's really been missing being able to duplicate and replicate a process and stick with a process that actually works. How do you think, um, you know, those successful salespeople that are able to do that, how do they maintain that consistency? And, and how are they able to ensure that that is communicated across the organization? Because I think in a sales team as well, you have, like what you said, you have some people that are doing the job McEnroe way and they're, you know, get, getting their numbers. You have some people that are doing it the Yvonne Lendl way and they're getting their numbers. And it never seems to be kind of like that overarching, like this is what we do and, and kind of delivering that very streamlined process to the customer, which I think that the, we, we look at Amazon and some of those sales organizations, machines, and that's literally what they do. They have their process and they don't deviate from that. Uh -huh. And that is a great point. How do you do this? This is where following routines comes into play. And I see this literally on a daily basis, how the best salespeople have their day planned. It's in their calendar. They know exactly when they're doing what. 
and they do this day after day after day. Now, of course, uh, every sale is unique and, and, and things will happen, but the core of their framework is the same. And that doesn't mean, uh, or it doesn't matter if it's in media sales or in higher education, it just means that you need to determine, and mostly that's managers determining it, but then also account executive salespeople can do it themselves too. You need to determine what works for you. And if things work, you write them down, you don't forget about them, and you do them again, and you do them again, and you do them again. And that's how you uh, create those routines and, and make it really um, normal to do uh, things that particular way. And then you discount things that didn't work. I mean, it's all a little bit trial and error, especially in sales. There's always, sales is never perfect, right? There's, there's never 100% closing ratio in sales. Not every deal that you're going after, not every student um, you're trying to sign up if it's in, in admissions, not everyone is going to just say yes and, and do it. So part of, part of being in sales means to dealing with failure and rejection. And the question is, what do you do with that rejection? Does it, does it drag you down? Does it demotivate you? Or do you use it as a learning opportunity and say, hey, Reggie Jackson had, uh, I don't know, like one, one out of four times he got a hit, three out of four times he got, he got, um, um, he struck out, right? Like that's very similar to sales, but he was still one of the top players who was in the, in the hall of fame. He was able to really focus on the wins and learn from the losses and, and learn from the strikes out, strikeouts that he was, uh, he was facing throughout his career. And that's very similar to sales. Um, it's, it's really about learning and, and getting better every day and finding your, your model, finding your framework, finding your system, and then apply it over and over and over again. Now, one last quick thing on, um, uh, on, on how do you kind of incorporate that in an organization. So that's really where the, the management team comes in. And, and I always felt like the role of a good sales manager uh, and I'm not sure what the titles are in, in your field exactly, but the, the role, there's probably someone who's in charge of revenue, right? In charge of uh, running and coaching a team. Their responsibility is to come up with a process that the team can and should follow. If you have a team that has, where every single person on the team follows a completely different process, it will be almost impossible um, to maximize the results that way. You gotta get them to sign up uh, to a certain model, similar to like a sports team where the coach draws up the playbook, right? And the players follow the playbook in their certain roles and certain using their, their individual strengths and, and, uh, and all of that, yes. But all in the team is following the playbook. And that's how you got to uh, approach it as the, um, the leader and, and manager of a, of a sales team too. You know, one of the things that you said, and I want to ask you about this because there are two really separate concepts, but I feel like they're weaved, they should be weaved together is the, the concept of storytelling. And then, you know, when you're talking about going back to the tennis, uh, McEnroe and uh, Lendl, you know, um, that following a process is absolutely key because if you don't, you can never measure your results, right? If you're always being creative and trying different things and you're not consistent, you can never measure what works and what doesn't. So part of being effective in sales, at least in my, my opinion and my experience has been measurement, data, data-driven decision-making that allows you to shift and move and, and pivot based on, on performance. Uh, and, but, and, but this, you know, being a storyteller um, is something that has to be weaved through that process, as you mentioned. And, you know, for our industry in higher ed, the story we're telling is a, is a future state story. You know, the product itself is an intangible. And so we're, we're always saying, you know, look at your future. Let me sell you on this vision of what life could be like, you know, years from now or when your degree is, is there. And so there's the, the, the empathetic and emotional piece of the sale that has to be woven into that process. And, you know, I feel like sometimes it's been, and of course, as Liz mentioned, I've hired a lot of salespeople over my time. It's really hard to find the person that can really be good at both of those things. That's great on process, buys into the process, follows the process, but at the same time has the personality and the, the um, I don't know, the, the ingenuity to be able to really get down into the emotional part of that sale and sell something that you can't grab or taste or touch right in that moment. 
that's, isn't this a little bit of a holy grail kind of thing? Because people, and that's kind of a dual question. Am I right on with what I'm saying? And then secondly, I don't think people set out to go to college to work in sales, even though any single job they ever will have beyond college is sales, right? We all work in sales one way or another, but nobody goes, Hey, I want to work in sales. It's more like an outcome or a consequence of working somewhere. And then they find themselves in sales. What do you think about all that I just said there? Uh, every single thing you just said is absolutely true. And let, it, let me maybe give it a little bit of color um, to every single point you said. So storytelling is really right brain activation when you think about it, right? And the best salespeople use that right brain of their listener or person they are selling to, and then back it up with left brain data and analysis. Similar to what you just mentioned, um, nothing wrong with using data but you use it to back up stories. And in other words, you're, you're selling the sizzle and the steak. Is that you, gotta, you gotta do both, right? If you're only out there just telling stories, that alone might not be enough. But if you use a story and weave it in to the entire conversation that you have where you're showing certain data points that make sense in a particular situation, that's what the best salespeople can do, number one. Number two, um, sales can be learned. This is one of those, um, uh, I think, statements that I have absolutely found out to be true. In fact, it's true uh, when I just look at myself. When I was in, in college, uh, I not one day thought about going into sales as a career. Not one day. I had, was taking finance classes. Uh, I was taking marketing classes. And I always wanted to be a management consultant, like everyone who goes to a business, um, who's going after a business degree, everyone wants to be a management consultant. And, and so did I. And I actually ended up in management consulting and, and was, it was finance oriented. Um, it was really operations oriented at that point. Even when I was 25, 26 years old, not once did I even think about sales. Then I got into um, media and found out quickly that Hey, if you really want to have a good career in media, unless you are an on-air host or on-air personality, uh, you got to figure out how to sell advertising. And, uh, and that's how I got into it. But it was, at the end of the day, almost by accident. And I would even argue that most people that end up in sales are in sales by accident. Now, what I just said earlier, that sales can be learned is what comes into play at that point. So I was 27 years old. I had no idea about sales. I, I wasn't sure if I'm talented. I probably had some poor talents that maybe are needed, uh, like hard worker and, and, and um, you know, being able to take rejection and things like that. But at the end of the day, I started from scratch. I read, I don't know how many sales books. I listened to um, sales tapes, cassettes back then, even in the car. I talked to as many salespeople that I could uh, talk to and learn from. And I kind of built my own system that way and learned it. And um, this is where I think the benefit of the book really comes in. Like everything that I had to learn by going through all those trial and error phases and, uh, and taking in all the material that was already out there is synthesized in this book that just gives you the sales process from beginning to end, from what you're saying when you're picking up the phone and, and call someone for the first time to how you handle the situation when somebody doesn't want to meet with you and gives you an objection to what you're putting in an email to what the first meeting looks like, even how you sit in the first meeting um, and, and things like that all the way until the end uh, when it comes to asking for the order and then launching uh, the solution. So it's a, it's a process that can be taught. It's a process that can be learned. Uh, if you are willing to be successful in sales, the vast majority of Americans can be. Community colleges are major forces in and of themselves. And I figured that there's nothing a group of community colleges couldn't do in a consortium the likes of, of Unmuddle, that we could be unstoppable in a, uh, in a collective of community colleges across the country, like-minded uh, and serving people's workforce training needs. That was the excitement for me, that a, a collective of community colleges could do almost anything even better than each one of us individually is already doing it, like workforce development, which we all are. 
I love that because it really speaks to the heart of something I even say in my English composition courses, which it seems totally counterintuitive because you're Does learning say how to write. Say it louder for the people in the backlist. Say it louder for the people. I do tell them that. But the other thing I always tell them is everybody's in sales. And I think to a certain extent, um, and you said this before, um, Joe, as well, is that you're right. I think that everyone can learn to be a salesperson if they have the proper training and a structure that they can follow and replicate and then gain that confidence. Another thing that I've noticed when you're in an organization in sales, the sales team, everyone knows in an organization how important the sales team is. But I think sometimes that connection between the importance of the sales team and how um, just instrumental they are in developing the whole brand of the company because they're typically the person that has the most contact with the, the client or the customer, the potential student, whoever that is, throughout the buying process up until they make that commitment. Can you speak to a little bit about your philosophy about that, about nurturing the sales team, about how organizations, whether they be a corporate organization or a uh, higher education institution, need to connect those dots between the importance of um, very structured training for the sales team and how that affects the overall customer client experience, the retention of clients and the overall brand of the organization. I mean, hundred percent, you're right on all this. So just think about a situation where let's say I heard media, um, you know, from many um, people and, and, and companies and, and the public perceives us as very cutting edge um, you know, a, a innovate, innovative and uh, constantly rolling out new products and new technologies and going into podcasting and event sponsorships. So overall, our image is as a very cool multi-platform um, company. Think about if a salesperson who's really, like you just said, the front line to the public partly in a one-on-one -on -one situation, if suddenly this person shows up and in a worst case scenario, um, you know, just doesn't doesn't portray at all what everyone thinks of iHeart. Like he's maybe not uh, dressed that way, doesn't speak that way, is not educated enough, is not knowledgeable enough, doesn't come up with innovative solutions when they talk about um, taking the next step in in the sales process. So exactly, is the exact opposite of what we want to look like as a company would be a massive problem. And I think this is where sales and marketing maybe intersect a little bit and especially in media um, this is an, an interesting uh, uh, notion because when you sell advertising you're selling marketing campaigns right so you're, you're, you're on the one hand it's sales and on the other hand it's marketing so they are intersecting but in in this case where it's intersecting is uh, when you just look at linkedin profiles like if we, we, we always look at what the LinkedIn profiles of our salespeople look like, like what's the headline they're using? What does the photo look like? Uh, are they talking just about themselves or are they really providing some content that's engaging for a potential client? Uh, because many times these days, LinkedIn is uh, when potential prospects and clients check you out uh, the first time, right? And, and your, if, you're, if the experience with that particular salesperson is not great at that moment, you're already at a disadvantage. Um, and Joe, I wanna come, come back to you. I think I didn't answer one of your questions and that um, is why I guess do college students uh, not consider sales as a career off the bat, like while right. they're in college or even, even after, or if you wanna word it maybe a little bit more um, bluntly, why does sales have such a bad rep um, maybe sp specifically with, with millennials and, and Gen Z. And I think it's, um, it's a couple of things. And I think most of them are actually wrong these days. Uh, and it's, it's really part of anyone who works in sales management and sales to, to tell the story and to let people know that it actually is not what they think it is. The reason sales gets a bad rep and has for many, many years is the part in the sales process when you have to set up a meeting with a potential client cold, meaning you have to pick up the phone and you are interrupting someone who has never heard of you at that moment and you're asking him or her for their time. And that of course is one of the most important, important parts of the sales process, but also the one where you get the most rejection. 
where you sometimes in sales feel like, uh, oh, I'm, I'm like a telemarketer. Oh my God, I never wanted to be a telemarketer. And, um, and the reality is though, uh, yes, that is part of the job, but it also at the end of the day makes up maybe 10%, maybe 15% of the entire work week. And you show me a job that does not have, I don't know, four to six hours a week that you're not 100% crazy about. Nobody likes cold calling. It's not a secret. I hated it when I did it. I had to do it. But I knew that, okay, if I do my job in that part of the sales process, I will be able to work on exciting and, and uh, innovative proposals and campaigns and meet with clients and meet new people and, and get to know new companies and uh, make money along the way. All the good things that happen in sales. So it's really that tiny little part of the sales process where it gets its bad rep. And then what makes it even worse is that over the years, sales salespeople just are perceived to have this reputation of this used car salesman um, kind of type of image, right? And the reality is that has completely changed in the last five to 10 years. And I actually think that millennials and Gen Z are going to be the best salespeople that ever existed on the planet. And I'll tell you why. I think they are better educated um, that than, than salespeople in, in prior education, in, in prior generations. I think they know technology uh, much better. And technology obviously has a huge influence these days on sales and, and all the different tools that salespeople can use. But also, I think they have more empathy. And because of that, they are going to be more customer centric and customer focused and take all of that together. And I think a, a, a typical 20 something has the best, um, I, I guess, the, the, the best qualities that you can think of to actually be really, really successful in sales. And, uh, you know, there's the stereotype also out there for of millennials that don't want to work hard. I, I found this to be completely not true. Um, the, uh, the Gen Z and, and millennials that work for our team here in New York are some of the hardest workers I've ever seen. So that I don't buy into at all anyway. So, but it's, it's I think you, 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 will, you will see people think about and talk about sales much differently 10 years from now than, than they are right now. That's a huge point. I want to just grab onto that just for a second, Liz, before I, I hand it back to you. Um, and, and Bernie, this is this concept, and I agree with you, because sales, you know, the pandemic, um, it, it, it accelerated changes, right, that were already existing. Um, one of those is obviously social sales, social media sales. Uh, you know, uh, uh, personal branding, because people can find you. This is something that we talk about here all the time um, on the end of experience. And that is, you know, you're the, the, the personal brand, you know, you brought up LinkedIn, it, by and large, higher education administrators uh, are not good with LinkedIn, there isn't a lot of time put into it, for a couple of reasons. Number one, typically, if you're in an undergraduate institution, the thought that your students are going to be on look, LinkedIn or any other social media looking at you, you know, many, many leaders think, God, I don't need to do that. It's we're teaching over here and this is our, our product is over here. And part of our argument has been your product is as much you as it is your university. And that goes for anything right now because you are public, whether you want to be or not. And what you show off to people, your LinkedIn profile, the things that you're working on, your content, anything that, that, you're, that you're up to can be easily found by a buyer who is very social savvy. And they're going to be looking for reviews from other people as much as they are going to be looking for what that company does. And so we, we champion that here. Like, you know, we need to get, we need to own our stuff here. And that goes along with what you're saying is there's multiple um, there's lots of fringe type selling. You can sell on social, you can pick up the phone, you can do instant messages from, from LinkedIn, you can um, uh, create content that brings in sales. So there's many more ways to develop a, um, a community around you that you can sell to. And, and as you said, the millennials and Gen Z are very good at managing and multitasking through that, those layers of content, right? Mm -hmm. I think what they need help with in my experience, is what I mentioned earlier, create routines, is to help them, um, in this case, not just to rely on, on social selling, because that's obviously very important, but that alone will not get you there. You still have to 
do other outreach work in our industry that does mean cold calling. It does mean sending emails. It does mean sometimes even walking into businesses still. Um, but um, that's the important part for millennials that, that the manager actually helps them get to those routine and, routines and and creates those routines. And uh, you know, when you just said about what you just said about the profiles, I mean, I'm sure you've known, I've seen, um, or seen uh, uh, photos of of your salespeople that you deal with on, on LinkedIn, where you see them in shorts and uh, a, a, a beer bottle at the beach, or you see them with a, um, um, I don't know, a station mascot in our in our industry. That's just not professional. So it's actually very easy to create your LinkedIn profile and make it look professional. And it's absolutely worth the investment uh, of whatever, $50, $75 for a professional uh, photo. And, uh, and then you just go from there and, and, and work on the content and, and uh, share things that are relevant for your followers. And then you still have to actively reach out to them. So they're not just always coming to you. You have to actively pursue them too in, in many different ways. See, Liz, I knew my, my advice was going to be valuable to you. And um, I told you to update your profile and look. Thank you. you. I know a hundred thousand followers later, here we are. Right. So I appreciate your help. <laughs> I'd love to, um, I, I got to keep mining Jules from Brady because he's just given us so many. I'd love to revisit because I know we talked about this last time, the idea of brand differentiation, because you touched on this idea of iHeartMedia, obviously just stellar, just standing alone at the pinnacle of the industry as the company to look for and look toward for um, just always cutting edge and just always seems to be ahead of the curve as, as far as the, um, the sector is concerned. Can you talk a little bit about how the sales process factors into that developing the, the brand awareness and that cutting edge kind of like that cool factor and how us in higher education, some tips or strategies that you feel like would be useful or valuable as far as like the importance of differentiation in the marketplace. You guys have been able to do such an amazing job of that. What are some ways that you feel that have been um, effective in you getting to where you are today as, a, as an organization? Yeah, great question. And there's a chapter in the book uh, about what we call power stories or power statements. And what that is, is a very short and concise uh, statement about 90 to 120 seconds long max that really lists what the company stands for in a, in a very customer-centric way. You guys have all heard about an elevator um, statement, right? Or elevator pitch, the typical 30-second pitch that everyone yeah. is talking about. I hate those things because usually what happens is they are completely us centered. Like they're usually like a typical ele elevator pitch for IAD would be, we are number one, we are we're the best, we're the biggest. Uh, and it's just us, 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 us all the time. Uh, plus nobody's ever really asked you in an elevator anyway. So I'm not even sure where that term came from, right? So a power statement is different. A power statement really takes certain client issues and then shows how we as iHeart in this case or any other company how we are solving those client issues. Like for example, advertisers turn to us when they are looking to generate free, reach and frequency quickly and cost efficiently during a time when the media landscape is fragmenting, right? So that would be, okay, the issue is the media landscape is fragmenting and companies that are advertising have issues with that. Where do I, where do I find the eyeballs? Where do I find the ears? And of course, one of our strengths, how we solve for them is we have a massive, um, uh, audience and massive, massive reach and can uh, generate frequency by doing that, right? So that's a typical example. Then from there, you go into successes, case studies, like advertisers like Pepsi or um, um, uh, Apple use us and then give a quick summary of how they're using us. And then the last part of that statement is, here's what makes us different from everyone else in the space. And again, you gotta be very concise. You, you gotta uh, figure out what are those differentiators in the marketplace. And quite frankly, less is more here too. You don't need five or six of them. Come up with the two, three best ones. And those are the ones you, you, uh, 
you use all the time and, and, and hammer into the sales team and with that eventually also into the marketplace and, and the client. But there is a process to it to, um, uh, to create those power statements. They are described in the book as well. And I think they are very useful for any sales team. It doesn't just have to be media. Uh, I had a, um, a sales coach many years ago, actually has passed on, unfortunately, but many years ago, he told me, and the guy was traveling from radio station to radio station and TV station to TV station across the country, even um, outside of the country into Europe. And he said the first thing he was trying to determine was if he would ask each salesperson individually, tell me about the company they were working for. If let's say it's a sales team of 10 people, if he would get 10 different answers, he would know that the team was not managed well because they were not uh, you know, talking in one voice and they did not have a unifying statement. If he would get the, uh, the same answer 10 times from 10 different people, it's the same answer, he would know, okay, they, they know what they're talking about. They have thought this through. They know what makes them different. And, um, and that's how you get the word out in the marketplace and the same word uh, for that. Well, Bernie, this, uh, you know, we want to be conscious of your time. We've got a couple of final questions for you. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. You know, we follow your work and Liz is your number one fan, just so you know. Uh, but uh, we, we want to give you an opportunity again to just uh, bring up anything about the book that we haven't talked about yet. You know, what needs to be said about it? Um, when's it releasing? Where can you pick it up? All that kind of good stuff. And then we want to ask you uh, about the, you know, last time we asked, asked you what the future of higher education was, it was pre-pandemic. And now we want to ask you that same question again. What do you see as the future of higher education with all of your experience and uh, see what you have to say? Oh boy. All right. I'll start with the book first. It might be easier. Uh, so it's, uh, so it's called ACID, how sales champions win new business. It's available for pre-order, uh, already on, on Amazon and, and then on September 7th. Uh, so right after Labor Day, uh, it's going to be available in most, uh, in most bookstores and on, um, all different types of websites. Uh, Barnes and Noble is starting a promotion, uh, on nine, seven as well for the first two weeks. And um, I think the one thing that I maybe want to mention again about the book is that it's battle tested and that it can be applied easily. So it's battle tested in the most competitive industry, in my opinion, definitely the most competitive media industry, uh, which is New York, where so many people are competing with uh, each other. And, uh, and number two, it's accessible in a way that there are scripts in there, there are stories in there, there are analogies in there. Uh, that especially new salespeople, but also experienced ones, can use and apply literally the same day. Um, there are scripts for uh, seed emails that you can literally copy and paste and use uh, when, when reaching out to a prospect on, on your end the same day. So there's frameworks and scripts in there that you can use. Uh, talking about higher education and the pandemic, I, th I think what, what it has shown, and, and certainly in our industry, and certainly in the sales profession, is that we are using technology more now than at any time. That's maybe not that mind-blowing, but what's mind-blowing is that I think without the pandemic, we would be where we are now probably five years from now, maybe even longer. So for iHeart, that meant really investing into um, different technology partners uh, to use databases that we didn't have access to before, to partner with um, customer relationship management uh, companies and, and their partners to really uh, make the sales process more efficient and with that more effective. And for higher education, I think that means if you want to work in the media industry you, you, um, and you're, you're, you're training and teaching people in um, higher education to maybe eventually go into media, they need to embrace technology. And there is, there is no excuse for anyone at this point to, um, to not catch up and to make that a, a real priority immediately. Uh, I, I, think, um, I think there was even a, a statement out there from the CEO of ADECO, you know, the uh, recruiting uh, company and and the guy said that uh, within three years, if you don't 
stay on top of your game, you will be completely irrelevant. Um, so even if this is a 40 something who is working a job, uh, if that person doesn't stay up to date in what's going on technology wise, he must, he was, she must still be in, in her, her, his forties and suddenly be without a job. And, and at that point it will be really hard. So I can just really suggest to everyone, uh, including myself, because I, I have to force myself to, I mean, I'm, I'm 49 years old. I'm, uh, I'm following technology, but not, I'm not a huge expert. I was not, but I have to really force myself to engage with what's out there and try new software and test new software and see what works for our team and doesn't work and then really make a decision and, um, and uh, decide what we want to use going forward. I love it. Liz, anything you want to pop in here at the end? I am just like so thrilled. This conversation has been amazing. I am, as Joe said, one of your biggest fans. I, I feel as though a lot of the insight that you have is coming from such a wealth of experience and knowledge and obviously being at the helm and um, running that area of the country that you said is really competitive. And, and we all know that iHeart is crushing it in so many different areas. So we just thank you for uh, just honoring us with your presence here and, and just giving us all these uh, insights and just encouraging everybody to grab the book because it sounds like it's going to have a wealth of knowledge and, and training tips and strategies that people can really benefit from. So we thank you for that. No, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Bernie, episode number six, all the way, maybe this will be in the 300s. We don't know, but we really appreciate you and your time. We encourage everybody to pick up the book. Of course, you can find the Edup Experience podcast on the iHeart dot com slash podcast uh, there there you can head to iheart uh and uh, find the edip experience and listen on iheart uh, if you didn't know that already which i'm sure you did and the bernie it's an absolute pleasure thanks for joining us hey everybody we hope you enjoyed that episode of the edip experience to learn more about the edip experience please visit our website at www edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.